Lord. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the second chapter of the book of Revelation, verses 12 to 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and if you've been here, you realize that this is Jesus speaking to one of his seven churches. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here ends the reading of God's Word. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Revelation today. The risen Christ shows us how actively he cares for his church, for his people, while they live in a world that is antagonistic toward them. At times that antagonism is more overt. It's like when Antipas, verse 13, is killed for not denying the faith. Sometimes that antagonism is more subtle like verse 14, when you're tempted to do the kinds of things that you see everyone else around you doing. And Jesus has an intention here. He wants to show you the nature of this world because he wants you to live with your eyes open to what the world is really like. He wants you to see that it is hard to live here as a Christian. At the same time, he wants you to see that the hardness around you does not have to harden you wants you to see that despite the hardness, you can be a lover of this world just like he is. That you can be a lover who longs for people to experience him, to experience the same kind of relational closeness that you have with him. So to that end today, we're going to look at three things. First, why it's dangerous to be a Christian in this world. Second, an attractive but dangerous solution to that danger, and third, what will actually help you face the danger. So why this world is dangerous, a dangerous solution, and help to face the danger. Now let me give a little spoiler alert. I'm going to spend most of the time this morning on that first part. I'm leaning heavily here on both the commentaries and things that I've picked up over the years from Tim Keller, and the reason I'm spending that amount of time on this first section is because I don't think we see the danger of living in this world very clearly. And if we don't see the problem, then we're going to easily fall into bad ways of handling that, and we'll never see how amazing God's solution is to it. So when I get done with point one and I say point two, don't look at your watch, grab your phone, and think, oh my goodness, we're going to be here forever. I promise the last two sections will go shorter. Okay? First, why is this world dangerous to someone who follows Christ? That's an important question because on the surface of it, you wouldn't think that it should be. What is it that Christians believe? Christians believe that Jesus is God. 
but that God took his immense power and his glory and he veiled it by becoming a human being. That he was born as a baby to an impoverished couple, not a power couple. That Jesus challenged the religious establishment, but he started no social movement, created no social, no political drama. Instead, he spent his life caring for the needs of others. In return, he was betrayed by his own people, and he allowed himself, God, allowed himself to be killed by the political and military power of Rome, and then he rose again. Even after he rose, he still didn't retaliate, didn't kill anyone. Instead, he wanted everyone in the whole world to know that he had just now opened the door to knowing God, and that anyone who wanted to could walk through that door and be friends with the God of the universe. That's what Christians believe. When you say that out loud, it makes you a faithful witness to this Jesus. And for doing that, Antipas was killed in a pretty gruesome way, slowly roasted alive. You think, how does that make any sense? Here's an amazing Jesus. Let's kill his followers. How, how does that go together? To understand that, you have to drop yourself into the Roman world of that day. It was a world that was filled with numerous gods and goddesses. Some of those gods were more global. They held power over the entire empire. Some were more local, like a god of a city. Others were connected to specific trades to the guilds, and some were even connected to particular families. So it was a world full of gods, and worshiping the gods was not simply a religious activity. Worshiping the gods had a social component because the gods were tied to daily life. They were responsible for the prosperity that you enjoyed or for the prosperity that you didn't enjoy. And so you showed them respect. You paid them honor. How'd you do that? You went to the feasts, to the festivals. You ate food that was sacrificed to them. And in doing that, what were you doing? You were expressing your gratitude to them for all that they had done for you individually, but also for all that they had done for your society. And you implored them to continue being favorable to you, continue being favorable to the society. Now, since the gods held power in certain areas of life or certain regions of the world, you had to pay honor and respect to whichever one ruled over that realm in which you entered. And so you would worship a local god when you came to a certain city or a different kind of a god when you entered a certain guild or when you entered a prominent person's home. And you would also worship the emperor. He was believed to be a deified person. He was the visible representative of the gods here on earth. Now, this is hard for us moderns to grasp, but everyone took emperor worship seriously. The Roman historian Suetonius records that the emperor who reigned during the time when Revelation was written, Emperor Domitian, gave himself the title our Lord and God. There were temper, temples to the emperor, especially true in the city of Pergamum. They built the first temple for emperor worship in the empire. They became a leading center for this practice. Worshiping the gods, worshiping the emperor, that was just part of being a good citizen. It was part of being a patriotic, loyal citizen. It showed that you were committed to Rome, to the prosperity of Rome which meant that if you didn't do that, you were almost treasonous. 
at the very least, disloyal. It made you suspect in other people's eyes. You were now someone whose political loyalties were elsewhere. It made you disloyal, and it put at risk the social and economic blessings that the larger populace enjoyed. Because by not worshiping the gods, what were you doing? You were offending them. In short, you were a bad citizen. You did not do what it took to ensure the peace and the prosperity of the empire. And so the message embedded in Roman society went something like this. There is an overarching sacred order that is outside of you, to which you must submit yourself. And when you do, not only you, but all of society flourishes. Therefore, honor and respect the gods, those who bring that blessing. Respect and affirm the powers that be, or risk calling down society's wrath on your own head. Now, there was an exception to all this. That was the Jewish people. Everyone knew that far back in antiquity, from far back in antiquity, they were monotheists. They were unwavering, unwaveringly so. They would only worship one god. But they were such a small part of the realm. They were mono-ethnic. And therefore, people thought they're not a danger to the realm, not a danger to the larger social order, to our peace and our economic prosperity, and so we can make an exception for them. They don't have to worship along with us. But then along come the Christians. Christians are not limited to one ethnic subgroup. <laughs> Instead, they're spread throughout all the ethnic groupings all the ethnic subgroupings. They're spread throughout all of the different socioeconomic levels. They could be anywhere. They could be everywhere. Anyone could be a Christian. But they refused to engage in the various religious festivals. They claimed that Jesus is Lord and God, not Caesar. And so they wouldn't worship him or any of the other gods. And so in the eyes of Rome, what are they doing? They're putting the whole social order at risk. And in that sense, the early Christians, they're not just quirky, you know, holding this unique allegiance to a risen God-man. They're dangerous. And they must not be allowed to continue doing what they're doing. There is no place for that kind of thinking in the ancient world. Now, the situation in the U.S. is completely different. But the threat is the same. What do I mean by that? In our secular age, the message of our society is different, but there is still a demand that says it has to be obeyed. In a secular world, there is no external sacred order that governs the universe, that makes sense out of the world. Instead, everything that is is what? It's simply the product of random chance events. And therefore, order and meaning have to be imposed on the world by whom? By us by the individual. And in that sense, what is sacred is not external to ourselves, it's instead within ourselves. And so we don't urge each other as secularists to submit to a pre-existing order. Instead, we argue for each person's individual autonomy, for each person to submit to themselves, to what they believe, to what they feel. And so the message embedded in our society goes something like this. You are a completely free moral agent. 
And you need to be true to yourself and to your own truth, to your feelings of who you are. That will make you the best person, the most authentic person that you can be. Therefore, honor and respect yourself and honor and respect the rights of others to be themselves. And when you do, not only you, but all of society will flourish. Therefore, respect and affirm each person's autonomy or risk calling down the wrath of society on your own head. And so if you don't agree that people have a right to themselves, to their own bodies, to do what they want, when they want, with whom they want, you're not simply quirky. You're what? You're mean, unkind, nasty. You don't love people, which means what? You're dangerous. And you must not be allowed to continue doing what you're doing. There's no place for that kind of thinking in the modern world. Now, is our situation as Christians as bad as the situation of Christians who lived in Rome? You think, no, clearly not. And yet, as a society, we have moved a little bit more in that direction. At one point in time in our country, being religious was seen as a virtue. It was something positive. In his book, Loving the City, Tim Keller writes that he had once heard a lecture by the management pioneer Peter Drucker. Drucker had moved to New York City area in the 1950s, and he was surprised when he tried to take out a mortgage to buy a house. Because at the bank, he was asked, if he went to church or synagogue, Drucker, coming from Austria, a little surprised at this, and he asks, why, why is that relevant? And he's told something along the lines of, why would we trust a man who didn't go to church or synagogue? In other words, in the 1950s, religion, submitting yourself to an external sacred order, that was seen as a positive good. For whom? Not just for you personally, it was a positive force for good in society. It made you a better citizen. It's no longer the case. After the 1950s, for a time, being religious shifted from something that was positive to something a little bit more neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It's more of a personal thing. Increasingly, however, being religious is seen as something negative, something that makes you a bad citizen. Just recently, at the beginning of May 2022, a uh, ruling came down from the Supreme Court, and a, an attorney had argued before the Supreme Court a case in which the city of Boston had allowed various nonprofit groups to fly a flag on their flagpole in front of City Hall. Over a 12-year period of time, they had received 284 requests from nonprofit groups. Of those 284 requests, only one was turned down. That was, by, that was a request by a group to fly a Christian flag. That request, decision, was appealed, taken to court, later argued all the way up to the Supreme Court, which, by the way, ruled that the city of Boston had acted unconstitutionally. I say, by the way, because I really don't want to talk about the decision this morning. Instead, I want to highlight a statement that the attorney for the city made. This is a statement that he made as he's arguing before the court. He said, quote, In a democratic system like ours, it is critically important that governments retain the right 
and the ability to speak on behalf of their constituents and take positions and privilege certain viewpoints when doing so. Unquote. Now, what, what, what did he just say? He argued that the government has to be allowed, that it is critically important for governments to privilege certain viewpoints, to elevate them above others. And he went on to say that the city must act, quote, to ensure it cannot be compelled to use its city flagpole to publicize messages antithetical to its own, unquote. You think about that word choice very carefully. He's arguing before the Supreme Court. That means this is carefully thought out. You're not going to just say something off the top of your head in that venue. And he used the word antithetical. It's a really strong word. He used it to describe this one flag, this one message, in its relationship to the message of Boston's government. He used the word antithetical to say that the Christian message, as represented by this flag, is hostile to the message of Boston's government. That's the perspective argued by a major U.S. city in open court at the highest level. That's bad. What's at least as bad is the solution, he argued, which is that the city has to have the right to use its power to keep this one antithetical message from being allowed out into the public sphere over which it exerts its authority. That's where autonomy leads. At some point, you have to shut down someone else and their thoughts. You have to remove their beliefs from consideration. You have to eliminate their beliefs with your power. Because at some point, what they believe and want is antithetical to what you believe and want. And in a world where there is no outside moral or sacred order, there is no way to adjudicate between your wants and beliefs and someone else's. Because there's nothing outside of us that we can appeal to, nothing that we can all equally appeal to. And so in that world, you decide the issue on the basis of who holds power in that moment. You decide the issue by suppressing someone's beliefs and elevating your own, how? By force, by power. You decide the issue by oppression by oppressing someone else. And the worst of it is you can't get around it. In order for everyone to be autonomous, we have to be willing to let somebody be oppressed, squashed, for the sake of someone else's autonomy. We have to be willing to let men beat out women in their own sporting events for gender autonomy. That's oppressive. We have to be willing to offer up pre-born human beings, sacrifice them on the altar of sexual autonomy and sexual freedom. That's oppressive. We have to be willing to take children out of the security of knowing both of their parents and shuffle them back and forth between multiple households with multiple partners, even though the data shows that is not in the child's best interest, so that all the adults involved can indulge their own desires whenever and however they want at the expense of the child. That's oppressive. 
You cannot create a society based on autonomy that is free from oppression. It only works because we have decided that certain oppressions are acceptable to us as a society. And that's when, as Christians, we have to get wiser and understand that oppression happens along multiple different dimensions. Oppression is not only race-based. It can be. In this country, it has been, still is. But it's not only race-based. It's not only economic-based. It can be, has been, still is. But oppression is more than just a couple different dimensions. It happens along many different ones. And in that sense, the current push for ethnic and economic justice in our country sees real problems that really do need to change. But it doesn't see nearly enough. It doesn't see nearly well enough in enough dimensions. Human beings are all made in the image of God, and so what? We, we, we see things that are wrong, <laughs> things that are not godly, sinful. We see some things a little bit like God sees them, and because we're made in his image, we want things better, want good things. And so you and I have to listen to our friends when they point out oppressive policies in our country, in our churches, in ourselves. We have to take seriously that people see real evil that really has to change. And we can never afford to forget that all human beings are fallen. That we have all turned away from God, that we no longer reflect him. We don't image him like we should. And so we don't see everything that we should. We overlook things that are oppressive. And we get offended when someone points that out. That means that every society will see things that aren't godly, things that have to be corrected, and every society will miss seeing things that are oppressive, things that our God does not miss, that he does not overlook. Every society does not see as clearly as it thinks it sees and doesn't include enough people in what it sees. Read the scripture, and you realize that God thinks all of us have participated in some form of injustice. Our current world does not like that idea. It wants to point a finger to an easily identifiable group of people and say, you are the problem. If we just deal with you, the rest of us will be fine. God steps in and he says, that's not true. All of you have moved away from what I've said. No one loves their neighbor as they love themselves. Which means what? Everyone is guilty of some form of hatred at some time. You've all used your power at various times to get what you wanted when someone wanted something else. You've said things, I've said things, you've done things, left things unsaid that meant you got what you wanted at someone else's expense. And God says that's a problem for all of you. Now that's an uncomfortable God. That's a God who's dangerous to be friends with. That's a God who will get you in trouble. Because if you're going to be his friend, you end up having to say to the world that you live in, your gods are not good enough. And it doesn't matter whether those gods are external or internal, whether you have a sacred order or a secular one. Your beliefs and values cannot rule us without creating a new system of oppression. Our God, on the other hand, is a God of justice. He gives us laws that restrict each person 
He tells us what we can and cannot do. He does not believe that human beings are autonomous. He tells us we cannot murder, cannot steal, cannot commit adultery, that we cannot oppress anyone for any reason. And in saying that, he's challenging the gods of Rome that allowed those things under certain conditions. But our God goes further because he doesn't only regulate our actions, he regulates our desires. He dares to tell us not only what to do, but what to want. And so the 10th commandment, the rule like no other society or civilization has ever had, tells us not to covet, not to desire, not to want anything that belongs to someone else. God regulates what we think about inside, what we want. And he says it's not okay to want someone else's life. It's not okay to covet their lived experience. It's not okay to want their things. It's not okay to want them. Our God challenges every social order, which means if we align with him, in a certain sense, we have to challenge them as well. And so to Rome, we have to be willing to say there is only one God. And all these others that you worship are not him. And so I cannot affirm them as God's over us. To which Rome says, then you are a fool, a dangerous one. You're putting our economic prosperity at risk, and we will have to deal with you. To the U.S., we have to be willing to say, there is only one God, and you are not him. And so I cannot affirm you as God over you. To which the U.S. says, then you are a hater, a dangerous one. You are putting our social peace at risk, and we will have to deal with you. If you have come to know the Lord, you are now a danger to the way that every social order is built, if it's built on anything other than him. That's point one, why it's dangerous to be a Christian in this world. Point two, there is an attractive, these points will be brief, there is an attractive but dangerous solution to this danger. It's attractive because it's no fun to be hated, especially if your world is inclined to take radical steps to control you, to restrict your religious liberties, to argue against you in court, or worse, to be willing to sentence you to death. Antipas's faith, fate, excuse me, was vivid in people's minds. If you were living in Pergamum, if that's what you're facing, being roasted alive, it just makes sense to wonder, <laughs> is there anything that I can do? Anything that I can do to help my neighbors realize how good a citizen I am? To see that I'm not a threat, I'm not a danger to society, to see that I do care about society, I care about people. Is there anything that I can do? Well, what's the obvious answer in Pergamum? You go to some of these religious festivals, right? You don't have to buy into everything that's going on there, right? I mean, just drop by for a little bit, see and be seen, eat a little food, say a few religious words, do a little bow, maybe even engage with a ceremonial prostitute if that's necessary. What's the big deal? It's not a real God anyway, right? It's just food. Goes in, goes out. It's just sex. Nothing goes into your soul. What's the harm here? Besides, if any of it is a sin, God will forgive you, right? Jesus took care of all of that. 
on the cross. Apparently, God thinks differently. Verse 14, Jesus speaking. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam was a kind of prophet. Back in the Old Testament, we read about him in the book of Numbers. He was not part of Israel, kind of a shady character. Balak was a king, king of Moab, who was afraid of the Israelites because there were so many of them. God brought them out of Egypt. They'd been in the wilderness for 40 years. God was bringing them into the land that he had promised them, which brought them right up to the edge of Balak's land. So Balak hires Balaam to come curse the Israelites so that Balak can fight against them and defeat them. God, however, only lets Balaam bless them. Balak then says to Balaam, well, then I'm not going to pay you. Balaam then comes up with an idea that will get Balak what he wanted. This part, part is not recorded in Numbers. Revelation hints at it here, reading between the lines. Essentially, it seems that what Balaam said to Balak was, look, there's some things in your culture that your society allows that God does not. If you can get Israel to join you, in doing those things, maybe God will no longer bless them. Maybe then he'll curse them. And so Balak's people, the Midianites, invited the Israelites to worship their God, to eat with them and to sleep with them. And that was a powerful invitation. <laughs> you think about it. Israel has been eating manna, the same thing, for 40 years. Now they have real food being offered to them. Real food and real intimacy with people who are about to be their next-door neighbors. What could be better? All you have to do is engage in a little religious ceremony, you know, just bow down to an idol. It's not a real God. Everybody knows that. We're just being neighborly. Not a big deal, right? God thought it was. He had been feeding them miraculously for 40 years, providing for them. He'd offered them intimacy with himself, rescued them out of Egypt so they could have a special relationship with himself. And now they didn't want what he's offering. They want a different food and a different friend. And so Numbers chapter 25 tells us that they yoked themselves to a different God. They attached themselves to a different God. The penalty for which was death. 24,000 of them died. And Jesus, drawing on that account, says to his church in Pergamum, that's what you're doing. You want Roman friendship and Roman approval more than you want mine. Yes, it's dangerous to live there in Pergamum, but you did not dig deep into a relationship with me to help you deal with it. You didn't use everything that I gave you to turn you, someone into, turn you into someone who cares about people's welfare. You thought that Rome and her resources could do that better. I have the resources. Christianity has the resources to make you the best citizen possible in Rome, even if they don't understand that that's who you are. I have the resources that could have turned you into someone who loved those people better than they've ever been loved before. But you didn't want what I'm offering. Instead, you decided to use the resources from your culture to convince people that you're a good person, not a threat. 
and you don't realize that you're trading what I'm offering you for stuff that will not last. The food you ate at the festival, that'll leave you hungry tomorrow. The intimacy you experienced there, that'll soon be forgotten. That food will rot. That person will die. I'm offering you a kind of food that'll last forever, an intimacy that will leave you eternally joyful, and you don't want it. And just like on the plains of Moab, there is a penalty for rejecting me. This is not okay with me. Verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them, those who have been doing this. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. The solution that looks so attractive. Just join your society a little bit. Do what they're doing. Be fed by them. Be intimate together. Worship the same things they worship. Agree. That's all it is. Agree that people are 100% fully autonomous. Answering to no one but themselves, as long as they don't hurt anyone else. Agree. Agree that there are no outside standards that everyone is bound by, beyond what a society finds consensus in. Agree that no one can tell anyone else who they really are, but that everyone has to decide that on their own. Agree that everyone has a right to do whatever they want with their own body, to modify it, shape it as they see fit, to interact with other consenting adults in any way that they all agree to. Agree that this is not simply okay. Agree that it's good. That it leads to a good society. Agree outwardly, or at least agree tacitly. Don't disagree. Just join your society a little bit. Show that you're a good citizen, someone who cares about others like they want to be cared for. That's the temptation for you and me today. That's what looks so attractive. And that's what's so dangerous. Because what you're agreeing to is that if there is a God, he has nothing to say with how we live. You're agreeing that functionally, he really doesn't exist. That he has no importance to anyone else, that he's not important to you. To agree to that is far more dangerous than anything this world could possibly do to you. Which brings us to point three. What help is there for us? I've already confessed that I'm no different from anyone around me. That I have been and will be again unjust. I don't want to, but I know that's going to be the case. I have certainly cozied up to my culture more times than I can count, wanting the gods and the pleasures of this world, wanting to feel comfortable here among people, rejecting God's friendship because what I really want is my neighbor's friendship. Is there any hope for somebody like me? And the answer here is yes. There is a severe penalty for rejecting God's offer of friendship, but there is also incredible mercy here. Jesus says to his church, verse 16, repent. That one word is amazing. He's talking to people who saw his incredible offer of friendship, who saw that he had opened the door to knowing God. They saw that. They took him up on it. They went through the door, and then they went and worshipped what their society worshipped. 
in that moment, they said Jesus wasn't enough for them. They wanted something else. And to them, Jesus says, repent. Repent. In verse 17, to the one who conquers, to the one who's victorious over their desires to just fit in, to the one who repents, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Do you hear what he's offering? Food and friendship. Hidden manna, the food that God provided from heaven to keep his people alive. Jesus says, if your society does the worst to you, if it kills you like it killed Antipas, I will nourish you. I will give you food that will keep you alive forever. I'll give you manna and a new stone, a stone with a new name written on it that no one else knows. I'll give you manna and intimacy. I will give you a closeness and a connection with God that is beyond what you'll be able to ever share with anyone else. It'll be known only to you. Connection that is just between you and your God. How is that possible? How can Jesus offer you something that you did not think well enough of the first time you had it to hang on to it? Go back to Numbers chapter 25 when the Midianites invited Israel to worship their God. God sent a plague on his people who rejected him and aligned themselves with their surrounding culture. But that plague stopped. It ended when an Israelite brought a Midianite woman into his tent in full view of all Israel. The implications were pretty clear of what they were going to do. And a priest, Phineas, a descendant of the high priest, Aaron, saw this. Phineas took a spear, followed the couple into the tent, and he drove it through both of them as they lay there together, one on top of the other. And that's when the plague stopped. God told Moses, verse 11, that the reason it stopped was because Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. God's wrath was satisfied because there was a sacrifice offered by a priest. The bloodshed of the guilty by God's righteous representative ended God's wrath. Why are you and I not killed for the times that we have worshipped what our society worships? It's because years later, another high priest came. Jesus, a great high priest, who took our place. He had a spear driven into him that should have been driven into us. Driven into him because he took our place on the cross. Why? Why did he do that? Because he wanted us for himself. He was jealous of us, giving our love away to other things, but it was a jealousy unlike any jealousy you've ever known. Because it moved him inside not to hate you, not to kill you, to die for you. To die for that thing inside of you that thinks this world can nourish me better than he can. To die for that thing inside that thinks this world can offer me a better friendship than he can. He went to the cross, had a spear driven through him to destroy the desire in you to run after 
other lovers. Look at him. See what he did. See that as high priest, he offered what? He offered himself. No one has ever loved you like that. You can't find love like that in this world. But don't stay there. Don't just stay in the past. Look in the present. Because after doing all of that for you, you still turned away from him. Many times, I've still turned away from him. And yet he comes to you and me right now and he says what? Repent. Repent. Come back. I'll feed you. I'll be intimate with you regardless of what you've done. He wanted you then. He wants you now. Turn back to him. Repent. Be faithful to him even if it puts you in danger with your society. And he will then give you what no one can take from you food and intimacy with him that will be deeply satisfying for your soul for eternity. Lord Jesus, you have given us an incredible salvation. Lord, there are not words enough to describe this. Thank you for your words, for, for the incredible pictures you've given that help us get a little bit more on board with what you've done. Lord, get us past the pictures, get us past the words Move our hearts so that we love you, so that our love starts to warm up to get a little bit more like your love for us. Move us, Lord, so that we respond to you with hearts that want nothing else except you. In Jesus' name.